oral questions by members. Leader of the Official Opposition. Well, Mr. Speaker, it is another devastating, heartbreaking day in British Columbia. The overdose numbers that were released today by the coroner confirmed that 2,224 people lost their lives last year alone. More than six people every single day. That is a 25% increase over the previous year. Every month, the numbers get worse and worse and worse, and there is no real action to halt the deaths. Chief Coroner Lisa Lapointe says, and I quote her words, our province is in a worse place than it has ever been, end quote. So will the minister admit today that she has utterly failed in the primary goal of saving lives in British Columbia? Honourable Premier. Uh, thank you, Honourable Speaker. And I, too, want to acknowledge with sorrow the findings of the coroner and the loss of over 2,000 British Columbians to a toxic drug supply. We have been discussing this issue in this legislature for coming on half a decade and more. Uh, on both sides of this House, there's a sense of loss of people in our community who have, have succumbed to addictions and have been taken down by a drug supply that is more toxic today than it has ever been. Also, part and parcel of the findings of the coroner. And although there is much more work to do, I think it's also important to acknowledge that all of us collectively have been passing legislation in this House, working to ensure that budgets are increased year over year. $500 million last year, Honourable Speaker, so that we can double the number of treatment beds for youth. We can put over 195 uh, treatment beds for adults in place, as well as building on the work that has been going on since the, uh, the advent of our first public health crisis, that of, of uh, a toxic drug supply. But what startles me, and I think what we've all been grappling with, uh, wherever we sit, whoever we represent, is that the vast majority of fatalities have been males between the ages of 30 and 59. There is a perception, and all of us know that this isn't correct, that this is a Vancouver problem, a part of Vancouver problem. It is not. It is a British Columbia problem. It is a national problem. What we have been trying to do, and in many times with the assistance of members on the other side, is to make appeals to the federal government so that they can build on the uh, safe supply work that we have done here to increase to some 12,000 uh, citizens that are being able to access safe supply to meet the demand that is estimated by some to be 50,000 and others to be 150,000 people who require access to uh, safe drug supply. I also want to say while I'm on my feet, and I think there'll be unanimity to this, uh, to just condemn those who pray on the vulnerabilities of others, those who are making a fortune out of bringing fentanyl and other toxic drugs into our system with no regard whatsoever for the consequences of that action. Just on the 2nd of February, the RCMP announced a bust in Coquitlam, five people charged, and the, and the RCMP sees not just firearms and a billion, uh, over a million dollars in cash, but three kilograms of fentanyl. We know that a grain of fentanyl can kill you, and someone in British Columbia thought it was okay to allow these people to, to conduct their business. And we will not say anything today other than we applaud the work of those on the front lines who are resuscitating people with those tools we do have and working to make sure that we get a destigmatized system in place here 
that is part and parcel decriminalization as well as a safe drug supply. But we also have to track down those predators in our society that are killing people every day because they don't give a darn. I know everyone in this place does. Leader of the Official Opposition, supplemental question. Well, thank you, Mr. Speaker, and I don't think there's a single person in this chamber that would disagree that people on the front lines are working hard and doing their part every single day. But it's time for this government and this Premier to step up and do their part. Six people every day are dying in our province. And I'm heartened to hear the Premier speak about working collectively because numerous times the leader of the Green Party and the leader of the official opposition have asked this Premier to do the right thing to bring the health committee back to do its work across party lines. We continue to ask for that today. For the life of me, I cannot understand why that is stubbornly refused. Back in 2017, this Premier said, and I quote, think of wildfires. We never wait to check the budget before putting the fires out. We get at it right away, end quote. And yet, month after month after month, here in British Columbia, record numbers of people dying, and the ministry responsible for working on that program has a budget smaller than the Premier's office. The chief corner puts it simply, and I quote, it's not a lack of desire or motivation on the backs of the people who are using. It's just that there are no services. The services are so very, very limited, end quote. So will the Premier stand up today and make a commitment to British Columbians that he will bring the parties to the table to work together and finally begin to try to mitigate the devastating stories that we hear month after month? Premier. Uh, thank you, Honourable Speaker. And, and again, I, I thank the Leader of the Official Opposition for raising these important issues. Uh, it is important to, to know that when uh, the opposition says the office budget for Minister X or Y is bigger than someone else's, it, it completely disregards the fact that the services that she speaks of that have been increased year over year are funded through health authorities. $500 million more going into mental health and addictions work over the past five years. Putting in place uh, an innovation that did not exist before we arrived, that is having complex care housing for those who are clearly not getting the services that the member speaks to. We need to make sure we're building the tools so that frontline workers who have been struck by COVID and the challenges that that entails, meaning that people are separate from each other, uh, oftentimes dying alone, again, a finding by the coroner. Uh, there has not been one fatality in a harm reduction facility. That's part and parcel of the model I think we all support making sure we're protecting people when they're most vulnerable, making sure that the supply of drugs that they are accessing is safe. And we're working on that, and we'll continue to work on that. And I know we'll have the support of the Leader of the Opposition. But for study, why talk? Six people a day. A death rate that has doubled since 2016. The Minister's response always seems to be the same. We need to do better. Today, the Chief Coroner says, and I quote, an abject and very costly failure, end quote. These are people's lives and they need action now. They needed it in 2021, they needed it in 2020. The coroner says this, and I quote, 
she said this last year, the fact that we haven't, had, we haven't seen a coordinated response to, in a very big way, reduce these numbers of deaths is just sad. It's heartbreaking. End quote. To the minister, how can she defend this catastrophic failure that the coroner continues to outline month after month? Minister of Mental Health and Addictions. Thank you, Mr. Speaker. The devastating losses across British Columbia are felt by those on the front line, by the families, by our government, by our caucus. That the increasingly toxic drug supply, particularly exacerbated by the effects of the pandemic, has led to such a tragically and terribly increased loss of life is something that spurs our work every day and something that we uh, strengthens our resolve to continue to invest more, continue to build more. I'll remind the member opposite, in 2017, the public health emergency was already underway, but there was not a continuum of care. Uh, this has been widely identified. And we have been working simultaneously as a healthcare system and as a government to both fight the public health emergency and build that system of care. And so, although I agree with the members' uh, characterization of the unacceptable loss of life, and clearly we have to do more, I do not agree in any way that no steps have been taken. British Columbia has already added uh, um, several hundred new addictions treatment beds, and we are building uh, sev several hundred more. Uh, we have already added uh, 20 youth treatment beds um, just in the year of 2020, another 30 in the year of 2021, um, more to come. Uh, integrated child and youth teams coming across the province. Uh, from one supervised consumption site in 2016 to 42 today, 16 of those inhalation sites were innovating across the continuum. Uh, we are determined to do more. Clearly, more is needed to be done. But British Columbia as a province and people on the front line are tackling this crisis from every angle, from a multitude of approaches across the continuum, both prevention and treatment, and we're determined to do more. Member for Surrey White Truck, supplemental. Thank you, Mr. Speaker. It's simply not good enough. It isn't 2017, it's 2022. And this minister and this government have had over four years, four years, to put things in place that will combat this crisis. When it comes to recovery, it's a failure. It's a failure to provide the support that this province needs. No one should be forced to choose between recovery and paying their rent. No one should be forced to provide costs for counselling and putting food on their table for their family. The coroner says, and I quote, greater access to evidence-based treatment and recovery programs are also urgently needed. People are dying on waiting lists. There are barriers everywhere, end quote. Will this minister today get up in this house and commit to take the necessary steps to make sure that individuals that are struggling, that are fighting addiction, have access to recovery, have access to treatment, 
in real time. So we do not have people waiting, dying on wait lists. So we don't have moms and fathers choosing whether or not they are going to remortgage their house to provide treatment for their child. Can this minister make that commitment today that this government will support affordable recovery? Minister. Thank you, Mr. Speaker. The expansion of addiction and recovery treatment beds in British Columbia is unprecedented um, and more is needed. The addition of, uh, of another $132 million that we announced this fall to fill gaps in the treatment and recovery, recovery system, uh, meeting people where they are in their recovery journey, whether it's care before detox, whether it's the step in between detox and treatment where people often fall through the cracks, whether it's after leaving treatment, having the post-recovery uh, counseling and community support that people on the front line, people with lived experience, have told us these are the gaps in the continuum of care that we are building up every day. And the I agree with the member, more needs to be done. That's why we have already funded it in last year's budget. That's why we are working every day to implement that budget and to build out that continuum of care. More needs to be done. There is no question. The loss of life is testament to that. And our government's commitment to continue to build out that system of health care response to the overdose crisis continues in every way. But anybody listening, I want you to know there is, there is every week we are adding new supports. Uh, and then the weeks and months ahead, you will see announcements again and again in every part of the province building that system of care that should have been in place to care for people and to finally bring an end to this overdose crisis. Member for West Vancouver, Capilano. Oh, sorry. <laughs> Leader of the third party. Uh, well, thank you, Honourable Speaker. I'm going to follow the lead of the Canadian women's hockey team and keep my N95 mask on for these proceedings. And I want to echo the, the words of the Leader of the Opposition and, and uh, on behalf of our caucus, we are very happy to see the Premier back and well and doing his job. Thank you very much, Premier, for your strength and we are very happy to see you well again. Honourable Speaker, more than ever we need governments that public feel confident about and I'm afraid that we're not there. People are confused by health policies. They're confused by what is guiding directions. What are the outcomes trying to be achieved? How are we measuring success? We have two devastating health emergencies in BC right now, and we need this more than ever. To restore that crucial confidence, governments have to be able to acknowledge mistakes and be willing to improve. They need to explain what is informing their decisions and how they are transparently measuring the outcomes of their policies. Right now, across BC, patients, healthcare workers, teachers, and others are not being provided a critical tool to protect themselves against an airborne virus, an N95 mask. Nurses in Fraser Health have filed a human rights complaint against their employer for denying them access to N95s in their workplace. I commend the Premier, and by my count, about a dozen members of the Government Caucus, 
for protecting themselves and others and wearing an N95 mask. My question is to the Premier, does he recognize and acknowledge that COVID-19 is an airborne virus? Minister of Health. Uh, thank you very much, uh, Honourable Speaker. Uh, um, with respect to the COVID-19 pandemic, and the member will know this, in British Columbia, our efforts in this area and in all others have been guided by the science, guided by an outstanding team of public health leaders led by Dr. Bonnie Henry, an internationally regarded expert in these areas. And her position in BC is enshrined in statute to provide independent advice to the government. With respect to uh, mask wearing in BC, what the strength of that approach has been, has been over the course of the pandemic to adapt to the science and the circumstances, something Dr. Henry has consistently done and why overwhelmingly in BC people have supported that effort because they know it's based on the evidence and they know it's based on the best counsel and will continue to be. With respect to PPE in general and N95 masks in particular, part of my task has been to ensure with the healthcare system that people have the masks and the healthcare system that are required, where they're required, to protect themselves and to protect their patients, and that has happened. We have built an inventory, for example, in the healthcare system of 7.7 million N95 masks to do so. And our work and our guidance will continue to be based as it has been from the beginning on the advice of public health professionals, on Dr. Henry and her team, an internationally regarded group of experts. Leader of the Third Party Supplemental. Thank you, Honourable Speaker, and thank you to the Minister. However, he invokes internationally regarded. The WHO has acknowledged that COVID is airborne. The Canadian Public Health Agency has acknowledged that COVID is airborne, has recommended that people wear N95 masks. We are internationally regarded at this moment of being out of line with a lot of the consensus around the airborne transmission. And people are being told they cannot wear their own N95 masks into health facilities in this province. Yesterday, the BC Children's Hospital was tweeting that N95 is not an airborne virus. This is on top of many statements being made by public health authorities in this province doubling down on droplet transmission of this virus. My question again is to the Minister of Health. Why will he not stand up and acknowledge this is an airborne virus and the best protection that people can have in this room, 100% of people in this room are vaccinated and we are all wearing masks, doing the right thing to reduce transmission of this virus. We need the leadership to recognize it's time to acknowledge this is an airborne virus. Minister of Health. Well, Honorable Speaker, uh, Dr. Henry and I, but in particular Dr. Henry, but also Dr. Gustafson and our team of experts uh, at the BC CDC, has briefed on the question of transmission repeatedly over the last two years, including on this precise issue 
of transmission. And we've put in place a set of protections for people, layers of protection, that allow them to be as safe as possible in the context of a global pandemic. The, minister, the member talks about international comparisons. Well, an important international comparison is the fact that British Columbia, and this isn't Dr. Henry, and it's not me, and it's not the Premier, and it's not the government, it's all of us, has one of the highest levels of vaccination in the world here in British Columbia. One of the highest levels of compliance with public health guidance, and that is, I think, uh, pretty significant. And we have, and this is our success, all the members of the legislature, all the people of BC, one of the lowest levels of mortality in comparable jurisdictions anywhere in the world. And that's because Dr. Henry has given clear advice based on the evidence, and the people of BC, to, I think, uh, an enormous degree, have followed and supported that effort because they want to keep each other safe as well. Now, West Vancouver, Capilano. Thank you very much, Mr. Speaker. When we were last in this House, we raised story after story about parents of neurodiverse children who were anxious, angry, upset about the NDP clawback of autism funding. Months later, those parents have continued. In fact, uh, they're on the legislature, we're on the legislature lawn earlier today and in the gallery today to send a message to this government. Monica Nunez from Langford says, and I quote, as a parent of a child with autism, I am not only infuriated, but I am scared for my child's future. If government truly wants to help all children, they will reconsider the move to eliminate autism funding, end quote. So will the minister today listen to Monica and the other parents that are in the gallery here today and reverse this heartless clawback? Minister of Children and Families. Now, thank you, uh, Honourable Speaker, and thank you to the member for the question. Thank you to the parents for being here today as well. Honourable Speaker, for many years, my ministry have been hearing from families that their children have been left behind. Uh, there's a patchwork of programs that's available for some of, some of the uh, community of children and youth with support needs. We did consultation in 2019 with over 1,500 individuals. And Honourable Speaker, it, just in the month of December last year alone, we engaged with about 850 families as well. It is important to listen to families. We are actively doing that. The next sessions of engagement with families start on February the 28th. We're committed to listening to families and to make this transformation as successful as it can possibly be for the children and youth in our province. We are committed to working with families to make it right and to make sure that all children and youth receive the services for their unique needs as early as possible. Member for West Vancouver Capilano, supplemental. Thank you, Mr. Speaker. Groundhog Day was last week, Mr. Speaker, but I feel that it is today because we continue to get the same answer to different questions, and it's never a real answer. The NDP's cold-hearted clawback affects 
all neurodiverse children. The minister is ignoring this broad coalition opposed to her clawback. She is ignoring the parents in the gallery today. She's even ignoring her friends, her political allies. The president of the BCTF said this morning, and I quote, it's heartbreaking to think that government would knowingly subject disabled students to significant emotional, physical, and psychological distress. It's time for government to listen, end quote. So will the minister listen to parents, listen to the BCTF, and stop the clawback? Minister of Children and Family Development. Well, thank you, Honourable Speaker, and uh, thank you to the member for the question, because it is very important to listen to people with expertise and with experience and with knowledge. And for many years, the ministry has been listening. And, and the ministry... Members. The ministry has been listening to families and to advocates and to um, very experienced service providers as well, Honourable Speaker. The community of children and youth with support needs is diverse and so are the people who serve them as well. We need to listen to them and to be working very closely with them, which is what we are doing. We did over 2,000, just in December um, of last year, we had engagement sessions with over 2,000 people from families and from service providers. We're continuing that engagement, Honourable Speaker, as we implement this really important transformation. We've heard from too many families that their kids are getting left behind. Honourable Speaker, we have received several reports from the representative for children and youth, the independent representative for children, telling us that we need to move to a needs-based system, and that is what we're doing. There, there was an all-party, all-party select standing committee of this legislative assembly that wrote a recommendation that we should be moving to a system of needs-based services. Honourable Speaker, what that means is, is that children get supports Members. when they need them. Children need supports as early as possible, not locked behind a diagnosis, in order to have a successful developmental path. Member for Kamloops, North Thompson. Well, thank you, Mr. Speaker. It's very clearly the minister that is not listening and failing to communicate with these parents, failing to talk with them, failing to engage with them in any way. In fact, this is likely the closest most of these parents will ever get to actually feeling like they've had any discussion or communication with this minister. The Minister's false attempts at division is disrespectful to the broad coalition of neurodiverse children and their families who are speaking out against her decision. Absolutely nobody recommended clawing back individualized funding, but that is what this NDP government has chosen to do. The message from even their political allies like the BCTF is clear, and I quote, stop the planned clawback of individual funding for children with autism. Government must stop with the political pandering and do what's right for the kids, end quote. So again, will the minister do what is right and stop the clawback? Minister. Honourable Speaker, uh, thank you. Thank you to the member for the question. Um, I have heard countless stories from families, um, and I hear from families who tell me that even if their child has a diagnosis and they have access to individualised funding, 
uh, there are many families that aren't able to find services to be able to support their child. And many other families are burnt out, Honourable Speaker. They don't want to be a case manager for their children. They want to be able to be a parent and they want to be supported in having services delivered um, and available and supports available for their children as early as possible. Families have been asking for an increase in respite, Honourable Speaker, and our government has increased respite funding. Families of children with complex needs have told me just how stressed and strained they are because of a lack of support based on need and because the current system is so fragmented. And families who live in remote communities find it really difficult to access services. Honourable Speaker, we're working on building a system that will ensure that all families, all families and their children will receive the services that their children need based on needs and the services will match the needs and families and children will set goals together and then they'll get the support to be able to achieve Members, those goals let's listen and, to the answer. and continue to receive those services. Uh, we are building a system that will reach into all parts of the province, deliver those services that children need as early as possible. Member for Cambridge North Thompson, supplemental. Thank you. Well, the minister just seemed to describe the system she's trying to claw back and tear apart, actually. So let's hear from, a fan let's hear from someone else that isn't sure the minister has been listening to her. Noelle Smith from Campbell River was diagnosed with autism as a two-year-old and has overcome the trauma and stigma of being told she would never graduate. Not only did Noelle graduate with top grades, she is now a behavioral interventionist supporting herself and working to help others as a result of the individualized autism funding that this minister is now so cruelly clawing back. Nicole has this question, Noelle has this question for the minister and I quote, why is it okay to remove me and other fellow workers from a child and youth who trusts us? Will the minister show Noelle the respect she deserves and answer Noelle's direct question? Minister. Thank you, Honourable Speaker, and thank you for the, uh, to the member for the question as well. Of course, this is a really important transformation to make sure that we get the services that are needed for families in British Columbia, uh, get the services to them and to their children as soon as possible. We, uh, we're engaging with families. We want to hear from families about um, how they envision their children being served in the new system, how we can work in partnership with them, co-create those that package of services, putting the child and youth at the centre, working with the circle of care uh, that's so important to that child and youth, making sure that there's a package of services that are there to meet the needs of that child. So we're working with families and listening to families. We're working with service providers, listening to service providers, advocates in the community as well. Honourable Speaker, we're going to continue those conversations to make sure, we're going to continue those conversations to make sure that all children in British Columbia get the services that they need as soon as possible. The bell ends the question period.